Hello, welcome to another episode of the Capital Employed Podcast. For this episode, we had the pleasure of being joined by Peter Johns, founder and manager of West Ferry Investment Group based in Brisbane, Australia. In this episode, Peter talks about his investment style and two Australian microcaps he's bullish on for the long term. I really enjoyed listening to Peter. He's exactly the type of investor we love having on the show. Someone who likes to go off the beaten path into the small and often obscure parts of the market. Before we begin, every so often we will be doing write-ups about stocks from around the world that have piqued our interest. These will mostly be companies on the small end of the market cap scale that go under the radar of most financial media. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, visit capitalemployed.substack.com and add your email to the list. That's capitalemployed.substack.com Please enjoy my conversation with Peter. Hi, Peter. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. No problem. Thanks for having me. Can you provide a brief overview of your background and how did you get involved in investing? Sure. I, I came to investing fairly late in life compared to a lot of people. I uh, studied economics and law at university here in uh, Brisbane in Australia and uh, then went on to be a lawyer, uh, pro- focusing on criminal defence law initially, and then uh, I did some prosecutions work while I was living in London. Eventually became a counsel assisting the state coroner here in um, Queensland, the coroner being more of a judge than a, a medical examiner, like you might see in a lot of American shows in, in Australia. Uh, so I ran a lot of uh, sort of high-profile inquests, and in that role, it was sort of in that role that I probably from 2008 onwards that the, the GSC became more interested in investing. And uh, like a lot of things, if I do find something in life I like, I obsess in it, on it and, uh, and and devote a lot of time to it. And, and investing is something that's just gelled with me from day one with a with a real focus on um, uh, smaller and micro-cap companies. And, and your recent fund you set up just last year, is that correct? Uh, that's right. Well, I uh, eventually... Um, got to the point in about 2016 that I was uh, through my own trading able to show that it was something that could be done on a full-time basis and I, I went out to do that but at the same time in 2016 a number of friends and family asked me to to invest money for them and I, I set up a a small fund which under regulations here can't be advertised or, or held out to outside people uh, I ran that for around three or four years up until the 1st of January 2021 at which time we'd grown from around half a million Australian dollars up to around 10 million Australian dollars uh, through having reasonably good results and, and also further money coming in. It got to a point where I had to make a decision to either stop taking in new investors or to, to get a uh, license and uh, move to a, an official fund, and that's what I did. So on the 1st of January last year, we launched the West Ferry Fund, and, and further details of that are at westferry.com com.au and we essentially uh, continued the same investment thematic but uh, from that point we're able to take outside uh, wholesale and, and sophisticated investor money. So what type of businesses do you like to invest in? Are there any characteristics or business models that you look for? It's a fairly broad scope that I start with uh, but I have a, a real uh, affinity for, I suppose it's a very old-fashioned style. Uh, I look for businesses that are already profitable or very close to profitability and where I can see that they're they're going to make it within a very short time. 
I like businesses that um, tend to have uh, hard assets and, and, and I generally tend to avoid uh, more speculative industries such as uh, pharmaceuticals or, or mining exploration. As a matter of practice, when you look at my portfolio, we've uh, very much steered towards businesses where insiders have a large degree of ownership. I suppose I'd, I'd describe myself as a doubting Thomas investor. My, my core theory is that people tend to massively overestimate their capacity to predict the future. And so I tend to gravitate towards companies where the company has already been there and done that, where it's making a profit. For some reason, though, uh, and th- those reasons can be many, uh, it is now overlooked or there's a mistaken view that the, the profit has peaked or the company is in demise. So uh, that, that, though, can entail all sorts of different industries. Okay, and how much time do you spend researching a new idea? What does your I, process look like? Initially, um, with the Australian market, which is where I'm predominantly focused, it's been something of a bulldozer approach in that I literally sit here and scan every company announcement title that comes out on the ASX, uh, and I will read those that uh, pique my interest, whether they be, of course, you know, announcements from companies I already own, but also anything interesting from a company that falls within my ambit, and that, and that tends to be micro cap, small cap companies, companies with a market cap of probably less than 300 million Australian dollars. And so over many years, you know, since 2008, I've, I've gone through that process of reading day in, day out. And, and through that, you build up a, a base knowledge of a, a universe of companies. It's probably anything from three to 500 companies, uh, which are generally small micro cap industrial companies that are profitable or on the verge of profitability. In addition to that, I'm increasingly casting my eye to, to overseas markets. We have some uh, New Zealand uh, investments in terms of finding overseas companies that might be of interest to us, things like your podcast or uh, Twitter or other podcasts uh, are incredibly useful in terms of just throwing out random ideas that can then be investigated. Uh, stock screeners are of some use, just again in terms of generating ideas, but uh, that would then require a deep dive. Uh, I, I love visiting companies. I attend uh, annual meetings as much as I can, uh, although COVID's put something of a stop to to that over the last couple of years, uh, and, and really getting to know management where I can. Are you looking uh, overseas because you can't find too many opportunities in Australia at the moment? Uh, no, it's more that it's just a, a hobby. I mean, to perhaps the annoyance of some people around me, including my wife, I will use my downtime or spare time to to just uh, in a in a nerdy way I suppose uh, investigate stocks and I suppose because I basically know all the ones I, I need to know in, in the Australian market I just love coming across new exciting stocks and, and that entails looking overseas uh, I, I've got enough opportunities in Australia at the moment and certainly plenty of uh, companies that I hold now that I would be happy to have a larger stake in we can dive into your portfolio um can you talk about two companies that you're bullish on for the long term and what was your thesis for investing 
Sure. Um, so these two companies uh, are both top four companies. We, we are quite open about many of our holdings. We publish our top eight holdings each month, and, and you'll see that these uh, two are in the top four. And indeed, the first one called PTB Group, which goes by the ticker PTB on the ASX, uh, is our largest holding. PTB is a Brisbane-based company, but uh, has expanded uh, to the US in recent times. It well, it describes itself as the, the world's largest non-OEM-aligned MRO provider uh, for PT6 engines. Now, I'll explain what that means. So the PT6 engine is the most popular plane engine in the world, most widely used, uh, but it's not on planes that most of us see day to day. So it's a turboprop engine, and it services planes that... Uh, generally hold around, if it was a passenger plane, around uh, 20 to 30 people. Most of the planes that it's attached to, though, are used for other things such as aeromedical. Uh, they're used on crop dusters. They're used on uh, small transport planes. So there's a whole uh, fleet of, of Cessna caravans that you'll see trawling over the continental US on any day with FedEx branding on them that are powered by PT6 engines. Um, and they service a number of other sort of small executive planes. It's an engine that's been around since 1963, still being made, uh, one of the great sort of industrial inventions. Uh, it's made by Pratt & Whitney. If you buy one of these engines, you can go and get it serviced by Pratt & Whitney, or you can go and take it to an uh, organisation like Dallas Air Motive or um, Standard Aero. Now, they're... OEM approved dealers, so Pratt and Whitney are uh, sort of licensed and at them, and uh, uh, will sell original parts to them. And uh, I suppose if it's in car terms, it's like taking uh, your new Audi back to the the Audi dealer and getting it serviced there. PTB are like taking your new Audi to uh, a local mechanic and getting it uh, serviced and dealt with there. In car terms, your local mechanic could be uh, anything from a a, a great option to uh, a dodgy operator. But in the case of planes, of course, it's one of the, if not the most highly regulated industry in the world. Anyone dealing with plane parts and servicing plane parts is audited and audited again for each different license they hold. So PTB holds the license to operate uh, from a range of different authorities around the world, including the FAA and and each of those organisations will have people into the uh, factory auditing processes um, such that PTB will have someone in there basically every two weeks uh, from a different organisation ensuring that their processes are absolutely perfect. And so in, that's part of my thesis here is that there's really um, no differentiation in terms of the quality of work that you're going to get from someone like PTB as you would if you take your engine to uh, what turns out to be a much more uh, expensive alternative being uh, either Pratt & Whitney Direct or uh, one of their authorised dealers. PTB have grown to become now the, the largest of these uh, what might be called grey market maintenance, uh, repair and overhaul facilities. And so they started uh, in Brisbane. They have some other sort of bolt-on businesses that deal in uh, air parts for other types of planes. But what they managed to do is run a, a very efficient operation here in a factory in Brisbane. Their efficiency comes from ensuring that the factory is busy at all times. Now, 
the usual process at a mechanic or, or uh, at these sorts of shops was to have someone come in, get a quote on an engine repair. The quote would be made. Uh, the engine would be fixed often with uh, some disagreements over time in relation to what actually had to be done. So the business never knew when the, the engine was coming in. PTB started a an engine management program where they uh, charge a, a power by the hour, as they call it, fee to, to airlines who will, will pay them for every hour the, the engine is used and in return they get guaranteed uh, overhaul as the, the manual of that engine requires uh, and guaranteed repairs as required. And so that is not only popular with the the, uh, the market, it also means that PTB has clear vision of when engines are coming in. They track the hours that the engines are doing and so they know when the engines are coming in and they can space the engines to ensure that the factory operates efficiently. What they did about two years ago is buy a, a US company called Prime Turbines, uh, which uh, operates in the same space, but was still operating under the old model I spoke about. Uh, they have operations in, in Dallas, in uh, Phoenix, in Pittsburgh as well. The idea was to, to implement a similar system as they have here in Australia uh, and to ensure that these uh, much larger uh, facilities in the US could operate in a, a really efficient manner. The ability to do that was thwarted to some degree by COVID because the CEO in Australia here was unable to get over to the, the US due to travel restrictions. But recent sort of updates from the company and, and as recently as last Friday, a profit upgrade indicates that that process is, is happening uh, reasonably well so far. Is there still lots of white space for them to grow into? My view is, is yes. It's... Um, it was uh, a company that got smashed during the, the initial parts of the GFC because of uh, its association with aviation. Part of the reason why I increased our stake enormously at that time was because I understood that it was uh, the type of planes that weren't really going to stop flying. They weren't wide-body planes. And so there's some of the thesis has played out uh, in, in that way. But the, the, the real blue sky for this company is to uh, continue to use the the unused space in these large US facilities in a much more efficient manner. And the big opportunity for them also is that they have an agreement with a, a Japanese leasing company, SBI, who have agreed to finance them to the tune of 100 million Australian dollars for opportunities whereby PTB would arrange the leasing of engines or even planes to, uh, to, to other companies or airlines. The idea being there that... Uh, so PTB organises, for instance, a, a deal with an airline to, to lease, uh, say, 20, 30 engines. SBI pay for that. PTB gain on the margin between the uh, what they receive in the leasing fee and what they have to pay SBI. So there's, it's a capital light model. But they also, as part of the deal, ensure that these engines are uh, included in the uh, engine management program. And so they get the further upside from the engine. And then they also retain ownership of the engine or the plane at the end of the, the process. And, and part of what they do best is to uh, to take those parts and being able to break up planes and engines and, and sell them at a higher margin. So that, that's where there's a real significant upside. The leasing process was just starting to get underway when COVID hit. 
Uh, of course, most airlines completely shut up shop in terms of looking to uh, to take on new capacity at that stage, even amongst these small planes. But that process is just starting to open up again now. Okay, Peter. Yeah, thanks for sharing that company. What's the second company you'd like to talk about? Yeah, it's uh, it's an unusual company. It's called Schaffer Group. Schaffer Group has the the ticket SFC on the the ASX. So it's a company that's been listed on the ASX since 1963 and, and has been largely ignored for the vast majority of its life, despite the fact it's actually paid out a dividend for 58 years in a row, which is, uh, I think there's only one other company, AP Eagers on the ASX that can even talk about being in that sort of range. Uh, it's, a, it's a very old family company that uh, was a leather company, having started, you know, over 100 years ago, ended up with a bunch of land basically where their leather facilities had been in many years past. Uh, as the world's moved on and Australia became a, a high-wage place and quite inefficient to be producing leather, uh, their business has, has moved overseas uh, and in recent years has developed into what I think is a really interesting business. It's something that I would value on a some of the parts basis. Uh, I really enjoyed your podcast with Tim Delaney a, a little while back where he described the concept of the babushka doll or a company having some exciting parts that might uh, be found inside. Shafi Group is a combination of this uh, leather business, which specializes or only makes leather car seats now for luxury cars. Uh, but it also has legacy property holding or land holding and investment side, which I'll come to shortly. So the way I look at this business is that the leather business, the leather car business is worth what the market cap's worth, uh, around 280, 290 million Australian dollars. In addition to that, you get thrown in around $180 million on the company's valuation of cash. Uh, some equities and uh, land holdings and property holdings. Just on the property holdings, that 180 million valuation includes a large amount of uh, industrial land in a, in a suburb called Janicott in Perth uh, on the west coast of Australia, uh, which back in the day would have been out in the in the country, but now happens to be right in the middle of suburbia. Uh, and is about 34 hectares of uh, prime uh, land that the company values based on a, an as-is valuation of 45 million Australian dollars, but recent deals in that that suburb, and there's been some big deals uh, recently, allows you to look through and see that it's probably worth two to three times that at least. And so all of that ex- those extra assets, I suppose, are, are added on free. Uh, as long as you accept that the the leather business is worth around three hundred million, so the leather business is uh, why do I say it's worth three hundred million? Well, it's made. They own eighty three percent of it. Seventeen percent owned by someone else. The uh, the company's management have a, a fairly good incentivized uh, profit sharing plan as well. But in FY eighteen, FY nineteen. They managed to make uh, about $22 million, $23 million NPAT from their share of that company. That was unusual because for decades before that, 
it hadn't been making much money. And so people, including myself, were rightly suspicious as to why that NPAT suddenly jumped uh, and have been watching it really to see whether that was sustainable. The reason given by the company, which now seems to, to be true, uh, is that their operations were transferred to Slovakia. That allowed an enormous amount of efficiencies in terms of uh, labour costs, in terms of being closer to their customers, who are the, the large uh, European automakers. So they supply leather car seats for Jaguar Land Rover, for Porsche, uh, and they've just signed new deals with Audi and Mercedes-Benz. So that was the the, the rationale. Uh, in FY20, they were on track to do similar, but got hit by COVID, so that was a reasonable excuse, but even then still made $17 million NPAT. In FY21, they actually got a, some tailwinds from uh, the, the stepping up in production and made an, F, uh, an NPAT of $24 million for the for the leather business. And the current six months, though, they've been hit by... Well, not so much them, but their customers have been hit by a chip shortage, which has stopped uh, car production uh, in many places. And so that's uh, caused yet another hiccup. But even then, they're still forecasting a, a first half profit of around six to seven million. If you can take out the noise of COVID, uh, both the, the commencement of COVID when car makers just stopped making cars uh, and then the current six months, you're really looking at a a really good solid business that over many years now has been able to produce solid uh, earnings around that 20 to 24 million NPAT mark. Even though they're a very conservative company, for the first time this year in their updates, they talked about having signed some new deals with uh, Audi and Mercedes and indicated that they expect production and revenues to increase from FY23 when those deals start to come online. It's really only now with that sort of commentary uh, and despite the, the, the short-term noise that I've had the confidence to think that this you know, otherwise fairly uh, capital-intensive and boring uh, leather-making business is something that has some reasonable growth potential uh, really on its own uh, justifies at least the, the valuation of, of what the whole company is. And as I say, you then get all these other assets thrown in for free. So that's how I... I look at it. What, why is it so cheap? Well, it's it, and it's an illiquid company. So the two or three major owners own about well, an extremely large percentage, around eighty percent. So there's a, a reasonably low free float. Because of that, there's no coverage from analysts. There, there's no uh, benefit to, to them or their organisations doing that because there's just not enough liquidity. Your average private investor can get set with a a significant position reasonably comfortably so we've we've built up a position of around a million dollars in it without having to to force the price up or anything like that so uh for for a small fairly nimble investor uh the opportunities there in my view it's a nice um dividend yield i see they're paying too that's right and so they have the money's coming back to investors i'd i'd be concerned if they were tipping it into Something uh, weird or unexpected, but they're big owners themselves. They like to pay themselves money. For for overseas investors, that yield would be around yeah, just under five percent. For Australian investors who can take advantage of the tax credits, it's probably closer to six percent. I guess my view is that's a sustainable yield. Of course, that's the, that's the big question. Um, the, the payout ratio is probably only around fifty or sixty percent. Okay, Peter. Yeah, thanks for sharing both of those companies. Uh, where can um, listeners go to find out? 
more about you and your fund. Sure. Um, it's www.westferry.com.au is the website, and uh, we, we publish our monthly reports there. Uh, and I'm always happy to, to answer emails, or they can find me on Twitter uh, with uh, the probably embarrassing name when you say it out loud, microcap Jesus is the, uh, is the tag. So uh, see if you can find me there. Okay, Peter. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure to listen to you. Hopefully we can get you back on. Thanks, Peter. All the best. Thanks.